Paul. And I'm Grant. Uh, before we get started, as always, please remember to check out our old episodes. We've got a whole season's worth of content that you can uh, have a listen to and you know, see how we've evolved over the uh, the last few months. Uh, make sure to follow us uh, on Facebook and Instagram at The Atypical Rainbow, where we're going to try and post up some interesting stuff, some articles that we may discover or uh, other kinds of sort of collateral content. Uh, but let's get to today's episode. Today's episode is in the series Spectrum Analysis, and we're going to combine a little bit of his and history, because the focus today is about diagnosis. We're going to start a little bit of, with our own experiences with our kids, then I'm going to throw in my own little professional bent on it, but we'll see how the episode goes. Okay, so I guess the place to start is why did we start wondering that something was wrong? So I think by about three and a half, I felt like things weren't going properly for Jake. Though actually, maybe before that, um, I, Matt did have a speech delay which we got him help for. Yeah, but a speech delay in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean autism. I mean, people have development... No, no, it, it only had meaning in hindsight, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, so I noticed that Jake was very anxious about things, like more anxious than other children his age. He wasn't being able to separate well, especially from you, uh, but also sometimes from me. Like, I do remember there was one time my parents came around just to visit, and he spent their entire visit crying on the floor because he thought we were going to leave. And apparently, once we left, he was actually not too bad normally. But the fact that we weren't having him babysat, me didn't get a chance to calm down after we left because we never left. Because mm. they were just around for a coffee. Yeah. So I think it was at the three and three and a half checkup with the maternal health care nurse that I talked to her about my concerns. But you were not convinced at that point. No, and I'm not even 100% sure why I wasn't. I mean, look, at that point in my medical career, I didn't really have much experience in autism. Like, I hadn't started my special disability job, and um, I like I knew kind of a cursory uh, amount about autism from my med school days, but it wasn't really something on my radar. And it's not that I am against the idea of being diagnosed. Well, certainly not now, but back then I don't recall having an objection to it necessarily. I think for me, it was more of a, like a clinical evidence thing, which I guess in and of itself is kind of autistic. I kind of went, look, there's this one thing. I don't think this one thing equates to autism. Therefore, I'm not going to declare it to be autism until I get the evidence or like a specialist who understands this well to be able to declare it for me. Yes, well, we weren't even talking about autism at that point. We were just talking about the fact that he wasn't developing as well as we wished. Yeah, I guess we were actually talking about anxiety. I think, but I guess the other thing, and this is something that every parent faces, is that I didn't know what normal was. Mm. Uh, So I kind of went, well, do we necessarily want to medicalize something that could actually just be something that all kids go through? But I didn't necessarily then go and seek out further information, which was my own fault. Uh, like, I think I just had kind of a knee-jerk reaction to to what was happening. Yeah, there was one point where we talked and you said that you had felt pressure to be perfect because of the gay parent thing. Mm. That you felt like you didn't want there to be a problem because then that meant that maybe gay parenting was the problem. Okay. But I also wonder, in hindsight, after all these years, if maybe he... The fact that you didn't know at that point that you had autism meant that you're like, oh, he's just being normal because I was like that and my mum was like that and 
all these things, all these behaviors that you thought were normal because everyone around you had them. So you're like, oh, he's normal because I'm comparing him to someone who also has undiagnosed autism. Yeah, that's entirely possible. Hmm. Yeah. So I think, so then it was about a six month process of you coming around to the idea of taking him to therapy. And I think during that time we were doing a music class in Greensboro. And I remember that there was a girl who liked to screech a lot. Mm. And the teacher was very good. She tried to create an environment that was okay for Callum because she also had an autistic daughter. So she was sort of aware of these things. She like, she didn't diagnose him as a music teacher, uh, but she was probably one of the people less surprised when I told them eventually. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think we were taking him to this class and he was spending a lot of time. He used to plank basically like across our laps in the corner of the room. And I think you kind of started getting a bit frustrated at the fact we were spending money to bring him to a class that he'd then have, you know, he'd shut down. Mm. Uh, so after about six months, we came to a point where we both agreed to go and see a psychologist about the anxiety. There were other anxieties as well, though, weren't there? Like, I mean, again, in hindsight, it's one of those things I didn't... That were kind of like, if I'd seen it now, I'd be like, oh, well, that's clearly autism. Like, he was terrified of dead leaves. Um, oh, yeah, there's there a lot of things. Like, se- separation... Was, yeah, separation, dead leaves, and I guess noise mm. were probably three of the big things. But he, he was a very anxious child. Like, even from birth, he cried a lot more than Matthew did. Yeah. Like, Matthew was a very quiet baby compared to other babies, and Jake was a very cry baby. Yeah. Once again, though, that in itself is not a feature. Like, not necessarily autism. I oh, know, so. but if we're talking about, yeah, what was happening. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, he was anxious about a lot of things, and... The thing is, he did have the operation at five weeks and, you know, part of that was fasting, which was very hard for a five-week-old baby to understand. Yeah, so let's let's narrow it down. The operation is very vague. Um, he had the well, we talked about it in a previous episode. Have we? Well, okay, let's just, if you haven't listened to older episodes, although it helps to have context, um, he had a condition called pyloric stenosis where basically his stomach was all blocked up. So even though he was drinking his formula, it wasn't going down into his stomach. So not only was he hungry, he was also vomiting. Yeah, so I think there might have been a lot of wondering about if he was being so young but going through a traumatic experience like that, Mm. then maybe that's why he was more anxious and crying more often. Mm. I'm not saying that that caused the autism. No. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it was mainly around anxiety with him that was sort of the early signs. And that, so we took him to a psychologist about the anxiety. So as a psychologist that one of my friends had taken her daughter to for anxiety, um, and her daughter had been treated for the anxiety, but not diagnosed with anything. So then after a little while, the psychologist was like, uh, let's have a chat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I distinctly remember she was, the psychologist was very nervous, which is funny because, I can't imagine this had been the first time she would have had to have this kind of conversation with her, with a family, but she seemed very timid about it. And then when she kind of said, you know, have you heard of autism? We both turned around and went, 
or I'm a GP and, and Grant's a, you know, teacher slash studying, t- taking a psychology degree. So we're pretty good. Like, we, we took it very well. Um, there was this very clear sense of relief on her face after she, after we kind of told her what our, what our jobs were. And then the whole conversation actually just went very smoothly. Yes. But over the years since then, listening to you talk to me about people you have diagnosed with autism, I completely get what she was worried about happening. <laughs> yeah. Because, um, yes, we took it much better than a lot of your patients have taken it. Yeah. So, then we went to the paediatrician. Yeah. Um, to start the formal diagnosis, because the paediatrician had to be in charge of the diagnosis. So, even though we got... Part, part of the diagnosis was with the psychologist we started with, it was overseen by the paediatrician. So, we had to get go to the paediatrician, then go back to the psychologist... And the speech therapist, who we went to the same speech therapist as we'd already gone to with Matthew due to his speech delay. So let's let's take it back a step, actually, because there was something else. So this this session was primarily for Jake. Like he was the one having the anxiety issues. But once she revealed the diagnosis, she was she watched Matt as he was playing on the floor, and he was lining up his, these little cars. Like she had this box of cars, and she was he was lining them up all around the room. And she's like, "Oh, did he get that from Jake?" And we're like. No, JK got that from him. And then something clicked and we're like, oh, right. So the psychologist said, are you wondering maybe about Matt as well? Uh, so we had a chat about maladaptive behavior. So even though Matt had this sort of lining up of his toys, they used to line up balls through the house, I remember. And they get really upset when someone touched them. But overall, he was functioning okay Mm. um and he got over his speech delay without really an issue so because the autism diagnosis required sort of maladaptive autistic behaviors even though he was showing these signs um we didn't proceed at that time because he seemed to be functioning fine Mm. that did change later but we'll get to that yeah uh, so where are we up to in the story? So Jake had been referred to a pediatrician. So, so let's, let's take the clinical aspect of it. So obviously for any, any listeners overseas, sorry, we're about to talk about some Australian standards here. Um, whether it applies in your country, I'm not hundred percent sure. So in Australia, in order for a child to be diagnosed with autism, they need to go through a multi-step process. It's uh, primarily guided and, and organized by the pediatrician, which is why we needed a pediatrician, and then two allied health specialists are then involved. Usually it's a psychologist plus something, so either a psychologist and a speech therapist, or a psychologist and an occupational therapist. Each of them will conduct their own kind of testing, looking at things like processing, intelligence, cognitive kind of functioning, um, speech development, that sort of thing. The information is then collected together um, by the pediatrician who to put together a score, and the score will determine whether or not the person has the child. Sorry, has autism. Uh, I, I I distinguish. We're going to talk a bit about adult diagnosis a bit later in the episode for the, but there is a difference between how children and adults get diagnosed. But that's roughly the process. It is not short. Um, it, it occurs over a number of weeks and months, uh, partly because of available appointments, partly because uh, of the amount of time it takes. Like the the tests take a few hours. Uh, in total, you know, depending on what the test is. And then you have to get to the pediatrician who will then make the diagnosis. And I think you also need teacher reports as well. Is that right? We do, yeah, yeah. yeah. Teacher reports is part of it. I think teacher and parents reports are part of it. Yeah. So all of that gets put together to, to, to form the diagnosis. Yeah. 
Uh, so we went through all that process and we got Jake diagnosed during three-year-old kinder. Um, and then we got some funding that doesn't exist anymore because the NDIS has taken over from it. Yeah. Uh, but it was basically early intervention funding. Um, and we got him some help. Hmm. Then the next year, we the other shoe drops. <laughs> so basically, as we said, we had noticed these behaviours... Uh, in Matt, but they were not maladaptive behaviours. They were just, you know, slightly odd behaviours, sort of autistic traits. Mm. Uh, But then when we got to um, four-year-old kinder, I decided to sort of get the kids to drop their nap because at four-year-old kinder, they were going to be there for a whole day twice a week. What we discovered was that Matt had been using the nap per day to kind of recover and regulate his behavior and that once he had to go for an entire day without having an hour of downtime in the middle a lot of the maladaptive behavior started coming out mm. so he was ha- started to have the meltdowns he was sometimes getting aggressive he was getting anxious he was getting sadder um there was the point which i think i referred to before when he tried to run across like five lanes of traffic um but yeah so I was like, okay, now it is the maladaptive behavior. Mm. Now it is time to go through the entire process again. Yep. And the process took most of the year, I think, because of availability of people. It was really hard to book in with people. So it was most of his four-year-old kinder year um, getting the help, or getting the diagnosis steps ticked off. Mm. So, yeah, so his diagnosis ended up being, I think, probably about 12 months after Jake's diagnosis. Mm. Um, Yeah, because his maladaptive behaviours didn't come out until later. Yeah. And I guess if you are uh, a parent uh, and and you have a child who you suspect might have autism or uh, if you have a family member, say a nephew or a niece or someone where you think might be the case, the... The real distinction here, and they, they do list it in the diagnostic criteria, is that it does need to be maladaptive. Because the thing about autism is that plenty of lots of people have autism. Uh, whether they realise it or not, a lot of people certainly have it. But if um, they happen to grow up in uh, a sort of a culture or a family or whatever where their quirks are celebrated, or if it just happens to be the right kind of quirk... Um, or whatever the environment may be, it may be that they don't develop maladaptive behaviours. They have some unusual behaviours, but if they don't necessarily interfere with their ability to function, to uh, find occupation, whether that's hobbies or wood jobs, uh, or make friends if that's what they choose to do, then they don't really need a diagnosis. And we're going to come to that a little bit with the adult part as well. Uh, but this is the question, because I remember um, when, I can't remember whether it was when Jake or Matt got diagnosed, our paediatrician, who was lovely, and like, really, I was very, very happy with her. Um, so this was back in, what, 2014, 2015, when we were... Yeah, probably when, around that time. So, uh, you know, that was only six years ago. And at that point, she said to us that if our kids got to 12 years old and they were both functioning well and thriving and there were no problems, she would remove the diagnosis. 
Now, at the time, I heard it and went, that's really interesting. I think that could be a good thing for the kids. But having gone through what I've gone through with my own diagnosis, as well as sort of working with this population, I actually don't see the value in that. In fact, I think it's a little bit um, ableist, if anything, to kind of say, oh, well, now that you're the same as everyone else, you don't have a problem. You don't have a diagnosis. And the, the thing is, is that autism is not something you grow out of. You know, it's mm-hmm. something that you, uh, or that's always going to be a part of you. And being able to have an explanation, being able to be told, well, okay, when, if, in, if you do have problems with loud noises, if you do find yourself really anxious in nightclubs, which we've talked about a lot, um, it's okay. Like, that's just part of who you are because you have this, the, the autism and that it kind of encompasses a lot. I mean, one could argue you can approach the same kind of problem without the label. You could just say, all right, well, you don't like nightclubs? Cool. That's you. Who cares? Don't try to push yourself. You're not required to be a person who likes nightclubs just because your friends like nightclubs. Uh, But I think, and particularly if you are a person with autism, it's nice to have structure. It's nice to know that there is an explanation for things. There there is a relief that comes with it. So I think that um, I've certainly grown into the idea that you know, uh, we want to. We, we never want to deny the kids. You know, the fact that kids have autism, uh, and we talk about it openly with them. We talk about our own autistic experiences. We we if they have problems, we explain that that's part of the autism too. Um, and it just we hope that that kind of open dialogue and that sort of uh, accepting neutral kind of position to it just makes the whole thing less emotionally impactful and actually puts a positive spin on it. Yeah, I think the point she was coming from is the fact that a lot of people fear labels. Yeah. And we've come across that with parents who are afraid to have their children diagnosed because they're afraid of labels. Yeah. So I guess from those parents' point of view, maybe they would be happier to have their child labeled for a few years and then get rid of the label. Yeah. Because not not getting diagnosed in the beginning is a bit iffy. Not that I'm trying to judge people, but... No, no. Look, everyone makes the choices that they make. And as I said, you know, if the family in the world around the person who may or may not have autism, the child uh, who may or may not have autism, is willing to adapt, then it may not necessarily be a problem. Mm. You know, a lot of it comes down to what we expect of the individual. But I think where the benefit comes from the diagnosis is obviously, A, funding, from an NDIS point of view, but also... Just knowing, giving some guidance to the people, like the medical professionals who might need to be involved. Yeah. So, it's one thing to get an OT if you're having, like, you know, handwriting problems like Jake did. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you're having speech problems like Matt did. It, you know, you can kind of narrow it down, but if you know that autism is present, it gives you, a, not necessarily a crystal ball, but it gives you an idea about what you might expect in the future. What problems may arise that if you didn't have the diagnosis, you may not see coming. And so you can kind of put that in place. So uh, one of the concepts we talk about a lot in therapy for people with autism is social stories. So using stories to explain to a child about, you know, something can be simple like brushing teeth, uh, all the way up to social interactions and how to deal with, you know, bullies. Like it's... But that kind of stuff, I mean, could work for anyone, arguably. I mean, we have fairy tales and stuff, so the concept isn't, you know, radical by any means. But it just means that we know that certain things work better for people with autism. So knowing that gives everyone a chance to make their therapy as precise as possible. Yes. I think we were talking about that before, the idea that, like, especially with anxiety, you do 
psychologically treated differently if it's general anxiety disorder versus autism. Yeah. So that's a very important. Even as an adult, if you go to a psychologist with anxiety, it's good to know whether you have autism. Yeah. Let's move on to adult diagnosis. Now, I'm, I don't want to sort of recover the things that have already been done. So if you want to hear my story about why I got diagnosed and why it was important to me, uh, I suggest you go back to the season two opener, which was atypical philosophy colon identity. But what I want to talk about now is a little bit more of the clinical technical part of it rather than my own personal experiences. You can use this kind of understanding if you have a friend who's going through a hard time and you think maybe knowing autism might help. Um, Or hey, if you happen to work in this industry, you probably already know what I'm talking about. But um, sometimes it's just nice to be able to look at the nuances. So there's a saying, if you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. So I'm going to give a bit of a list Uh, talking a bit about the criteria and kind of putting it in a real-world context, but just remember that not every person with autism is going to have these features. But also at the same time, be careful about dismissing autism entirely. One of the most common things that I come across in my work is when I suspect someone has autism, the immediate reaction from the carer is, but they make eye contact. And it doesn't work like that. (laughs) Because I know I make eye contact, I make eye contact all the time, but I hate it. And I don't like, it just makes me uncomfortable, but I learned to do it because it was necessary for me to sort of function through life. Uh, And probably because I saw other people do it and thought it was the right thing to do. But, you know, I feel much more comfortable not looking people directly in the eye. Um, So just keep that in mind. The most common thing that people talk about in autism is the social difficulties. So there are three sort of areas where people with autism will have social difficulties. The first is what they call social emotional reciprocity. So basically that's having trouble in a conversation about how to keep the flow going. Sometimes it comes out as um, awkwardness. So I know that I had a lot of, I have a lot of trouble uh, thinking about what to say. You know, knowing what the right next thing to say is. Uh, It took me a while to learn that actually sometimes it's just better to talk rather than say nothing. But that's certainly one of the features. The second thing is non-verbal communication. So that's where the eye contact comes in. Uh, But it can extend quite far from that. So it might be a total lack of facial expression or uh, unusual use of body gestures to accompany speech uh, or communication. Um, But it's just, it's a kind of the physical elements of communication as part of social conversation. The third is understanding, developing, and maintaining relationships. So that can extend from having difficulty making friends to having a complete lack of interest in making friends. Uh, Again, these these things can present in variable ways, um, but that's kind of the rough overview of the three main criteria that you need to diagnose autism. Then there are the four, I guess, B category um, criteria. The first is stereotypical movements. So I believe Jake and maybe even Matt were both hand flappers when they were kids. Yes. So Jake was noticed by the psychologist during the sessions that he was hand flapping. And then we were watching old videos of Matt and we're like, oh, he was hand flapping. We just completely missed it. Yeah. Um, so that's the, that's the classic one. Other ones, the lining up toys is also considered part of this criteria. Um, but this is what you would call stimming. So, so people with autism in this category is the stimming behaviors, which again can, can, uh, range from a number of things like making noises with their mouths or chewing on straws or clicking or clapping or whatever, but they're, they're physical ticks that 
typically are designed to make the person with autism feel more comfortable, like it's a self-soothing mechanism, but some, but often it, it looks odd and out of context. Um, the second B criteria is insistence on sameness. Now, again, that that can extend quite broadly. The examples that are given in medical textbooks tend to be things like routines and schedules and uh, things need to be arranged a certain way. Like, I remember a patient who came in to see me when I was back in private practice um, who who asked me point blank, do you think I have autism? And he pointed out the fact that he has to use the same spoon and bowl for every meal. Uh, but it hadn't bothered him up until that point. His wife wasn't bothered by it. She just worked around it and didn't think much of it. So, you know, these things are, have to kind of be put in context. Sometimes they're there, but you don't necessarily think much of it until you really break, di- break down the criteria. But where I find insistence on sameness can have this sort of um, broader approach is often about black and white thinking. So a kind of philosophical, there is only one way to do things or there is no way to do it. Um, once again, there are ranges to that. So for me, uh, it, you know, the little things are like how to hang up the washing or what colour the pegs have to be. Uh, you know, but these are... Uh, because they're not necessarily maladaptive or they don't necessarily cause problems, then you wouldn't think much of it. It's just kind of, oh, it's who you are. But these are, or can be, I guess, signs of autism. The third criteria is what we call fixated interests. Now, once again, it depends on how you look at it. So if you have a girl who plays with ponies you go, oh, it's a girl thing. But if she collects ponies and has pony posters and has pony everything, along with the other symptoms of autism, then that might be a sign. Uh, Boys, classically, it's trains and cars. But diagnosing um, this particular feature in adults can be difficult because one of the things that I notice is footy teams. So so men particularly will have these obsessions with footy teams, but that in and of itself isn't necessarily a problem. Plenty of people love their footy teams and will wear their colours and have their posters and do all the sorts of things. But when it extends to the point of obsession, in combination with other signs of autism, it actually is a feature that we... It's not that necessarily we need to fix it, but it's just an indicator that maybe it might be there. Yeah, I think the other thing with obsessions and adults is that if they are an adult whose job it is to be obsessed with something, it could be very hard to tell the difference between them being good at their job, and them being obsessed. Yes. So one of... An autistic woman who I've seen on a few panel shows is, like, an expert on jellyfish. Like, that's sort of her obsession. But a scientist being really good at their job is not really seen as maladaptive. Yes. (laughs) Even though it has turned out that she does have autism and her obsession is jellyfish, and therefore she has fervent knowledge in the world of jellyfish. Hmm. And so that's why the one of the big criteria, I mean, the sort of the umbrella criteria for autism is that it has to cause social, functional and occupational difficulties. Because if you can f- find a way to make that particular feature a strength, like the jellyfish lady, then do you need a diagnosis? And that's, and that's the big question over all this is... Even if you spot it in someone, even if you think your friend or your parent or sibling might have it, do they really need to know? Like, will their life necessarily change? And that's that's the challenge there. And I think it really comes down to the individual wanting to know, but also whether you think it'll actually help for them to know. The fourth and final feature is sensory, hyper and hypo reactivity. The classic one is sensitivity to noise. 
so you'll see, you know, um, the Rain Man, unfortunately, never a great reference for autism, but, you know, when he was distressed or when it was really loud, he'd cover his ears and start making noise. And that's actually, that's a coping mechanism because the volume of input is too much. So it's almost like noise cancelling, like the vocalizations are a way to kind of shut out the rest of the world. Uh, but actually, it can go uh, sort of into a positive way as well. So a hypersensitive sense of smell could be really functional if you're in like the food industry, because I believe that's something that's, like perfumeries and like taste testers, I think, they often like yeah. people who have that kind of hypersensitive taste and smell. Um, and actually, it, the hypo-reactivity is the one that a lot of people miss, because people with autism can have a really high tolerance to pain. Because their sensory sort of processing to pain is dulled, I guess, as part of the autism. So those are the big ones. Those are the, all the main criteria. But how it how it presents will kind of vary. So then, so then, if you yourself identify it in yourself, or if you think that an adult person that you know should go through the process. Once again, I'm just going to talk briefly about what happens in Australia because I don't know what happens in other countries. In Australia, there are two professionals who typically will diagnose it. It's either a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Personally, I, I find the psychologists are better in this matter because they're better at understanding autism and a little bit more nuanced about um, why you want, might want to get diagnosed and understanding kind of how the symptoms can prevent, uh, you know, not as classically as one would expect. Whereas psychiatrists... In my experience, so I'm not labeling all psychiatrists as bad, but some psychiatrists tend to be a bit more black and white about it, ironically. Um, so they're very much like, no, if you don't meet this criteria exactly as I think you should, therefore you don't have it. There are a number of questionnaires that I remember I had to sort of go through, just kind of essentially going through those symptoms. So going through each of those criteria and asking the different ways in which it might potentially present. Um, unfortunately, the Autism criteria as they exist are based off data on male like subjects. Uh, so there's uh, so women are quite underdiagnosed by comparison. I think I think the rate of men to women at, at one point used to be like twenty to one, but it might be five to one now because we're gradually understanding more and more that it is for women with autism it is a much more nuanced experience. One of the things that my psychologist provided me was something called the Samantha Craft Checklist. So basically, what it was, was a list of ways in which autism can present that typically occurs in women. But it, it once again, it kind of takes away the... Um, the sort of rigidity of the the sort of psychological criteria and puts it into a real world context. So it, it covers sections like deep thinkers, so people who are highly intelligent but doesn't like simplifying things, or uh, naivete, or sort of brutal honesty. It talks one of the criteria survives overwhelming emotions and senses by escaping in thought or action. Um, these are practical real-life examples of how autism can present without necessarily sticking to the rigidity of the original uh, diagnostic criteria. So if you're at all interested, and if you read the question, the sort of criteria and think, no, this doesn't sound like me, I suggest you see if you can find the Samantha Craft checklist, because it's much more nuanced um, than, than what most people think autism to be. They have, you're like an alien. There you go. <laughs> yep. That was my criteria. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, these feeling like an alien is not in the DSM criteria. Mm. So that's why I, I, I particularly like the Samantha Craft checklist um, as a feature. This is the first time I'm looking at it, and it does look very good. Yeah. Like, especially the innocence section makes me think a lot of Jake. Mm. Uh, so... 
Like with kids, why should you or your family member as an adult get diagnosed with autism? Um, again, I, I'm pretty sure I covered this in the identity section, but I'll, I'll just sort of briefly talk about it again. It really comes back to how much will it change your life? Because if you can suspect it and you can operate your life as, as normal and you don't need, nothing needs to change. But if you are experiencing significant social anxiety, if you feel like an outsider and you don't, and you've tried real hard to fit in and you don't know why you can't fit in, which is what happened with me. Like I've just, I spent my whole life thinking, I don't know if I belong anywhere. Um, that kind, that might be a reason why you want to know just the, the comfort of knowing that there's an explanation really can make a lot of difference and helps you to accept yourself and really go, well, this is who I am, you know? If you are lucky enough to have people around you, family members, friends, whatever, who teach you that lesson anyway, lucky you. And I'm really, I'm really happy that there are people out there who can kind of create this loving and accepting environment. But let's be honest, that's not necessarily the world we live in. Half the things we do are because it's what other people expect us to do. And that can be exhausting for someone with autism to, to to have to figure out the rules as you go along and to have to make mistakes and face the consequences when actually it would have been nice if someone just warned you in advance and just gave you a heads up that actually these, these are the things that are going to be difficult. These are the ways in which society doesn't make any sense. But if you want to not piss anyone off, this is what you have to do. Yeah, and I think sometimes the diagnosis can just mean you can find other autistic people to hang out with and they are your people and they might understand you better. And understanding is so important. I mean, we know that from, you know, being part of the rainbow community, um, you know, if, if it's about your gender or your sexuality or whatever it may be, you know, having people that you just don't have to explain it all to mm. or people who can, or just people who can, might understand on a surface level, but haven't really experienced what you've experienced. Now, we even in um, medical conditions, if you, you're a cancer survivor, if you've been a victim of trauma, you know, being in support groups and being mm. around people who just, you just feel that connection, who inherently feel what you felt. Um, it makes a lot of difference. Yeah. I think, I think we should finish off by talking about whether you should approach someone about suspecting they have autism. Yeah. Because it's a very difficult question and I generally err on the side of not approaching people. Like, obviously it's different in a medical situation, but like, I'm talking like in a social situation. If you think someone else's kid has autism, it's generally not a great idea to go up to them. Unless you know them really, really well and you think that they can take that information from you. What I've discovered is by being open about autism... People have approached me when they're ready, hmm. but I generally don't approach people. And this is kind of the philosophy that I've heard from a lot of people after we got our diagnosis that they may have suspected, like teachers, but the best practice is not to try to tell the parents that their kids might have autism. Though there is some move towards... Um, Early I guess assessment. screening kids yeah. in primary schools to see if they have autism and then maybe the principal or the vice principal might have a chat with you, but it probably wouldn't be the prep teacher. Yeah. I agree. I think... So, it comes back to what we've been saying all along, which is that it's really about the individual and it's about whether or not they're having problems, per se. So, if a child is functioning well... Uh, because, for whatever reason, whether it is a good school, good parents, good support network, whatever, 
there's no real need to diagnose, right? It, mm. You know, it, yes, it helps, and it's nice to have the evidence early on, because one of the biggest problems I have as a clinician is if I am meeting someone with um, intellectual disability in their 50s, and I suspect autism, there may not necessarily be someone around to comment on what they were like as a kid. Yeah. And in the 50 years of their time on Earth, they could have experienced a whole bunch of things that would influence their presentation. If they've been abused, if they've, been, if they've moved around a lot, if they've um, you know, had to live in a house of people that are uh, abusive to them. Like, there's all kinds of other reasons that could explain it that really muddy the waters. Mm. Um, but I think what it comes back to is if they're having problems, I think that's really the key thing. If they're looking for help, if they feel if they feel like they the parents want answers, or if the adult wants answers and they're seeking your counsel because you're a family member or a friend or whatever, and you suspect it, then maybe it's worth bringing up. But it is a hard thing to bring up, and particularly if you don't have the clinical experience or the knowledge to back it up, it, you might feel a bit awkward. In which case, you might guide them to a psychologist mm. or a, a GP. Um, and just kind of suggest maybe find maybe find someone with experience in what we broadly classify as developmental medicine. So that's talking about things that you might be able to be diagnosed with, you know, young. That's something that you were you were born with rather than something you necessarily develop later on. Um, there unfortunately isn't a database for that kind of thing, but pediatricians, of course, are always useful. Psychologists can be good with this kind of stuff as well. But yeah, that that might be the the most pragmatic way of broaching the subject. Yes, but yeah, just be careful. <laughs> yeah, it, look, you know, it's it's good to be wary, and the your intentions might be really good, but it's it is a hard conversation. It's a really it's a tough conversation, even for professionals. Um, because like like what happened with me, if the parent doesn't necessarily want to hear it yet, or if they're not ready to hear it, then they're not ready. But my in my experience, the best thing to do in those sort of situations is to just leave them with that information. Yeah, but I think it's different between professional and social because professional, like you're a doctor, you're doing your job, whereas social, they might just cut you out of their life because they're not ready to hear it. Yeah, which is which is tough. And I guess it comes down to knowing the person well. And look, if you're not comfortable and you don't think it's your, your place, don't do it. I think that's the simplest thing. If you're not mm. willing to risk it, that's okay because it is it is a big topic. Um, so the, the, you know, again, it might be the the gentlest way is to just suggest they maybe see a doctor about it or see a psychologist, yeah. and then leave it up to the professional to deal with it. But but hey, if you're brave enough and if you think you have enough experience and knowledge behind it, and as you know, Grant said, if you yourself have autism then you can use that as your own, sort of personalize it and say, mm. and start the conversation and talk openly about your experiences and just sort of plant the seed and let the parent or the individual take from it what they will. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. We hope we've been helpful. Um, if you have any questions, feel free to post something up on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks for your time. We'll, uh, we, we look forward to you listening to the next episode.